All right, we are in Revelation chapter 1. Let's read Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it, to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first, and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write therefore the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. There are two senses in which the Bible is speaking of this revelation of Jesus Christ. There is this revelation of Jesus Christ 
in terms of his appearance or his second coming. There is this revelation of him in terms of his appearance or second coming. It says in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, that our faith needs to be tested by fire until that time we receive praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. When he's revealed means when he returns. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, Colossians 3 and verse 4 speaks of this same time and appearance that we await. Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. When, we, when Christ is revealed, we also will be revealed with Him in glory. That's one sense in which the Bible speaks of this revelation of Jesus Christ, the appearance or the second coming of Christ. There's also another sense in which the Bible speaks of Jesus being revealed, and that is in relation to the Father. The Bible teaches us that when we look into the face of Christ, when we look into the person and work of Christ, into the ministry of Christ, we see the Father, and this is what ultimately we need. We need to see God in the face of Christ. This is what we need. John chapter 1 and verse 18. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He, Christ, has explained the Father. No one sees God the Father at any time. At any time throughout history, no one has a visible manifestation of the Father. But if we are going to know the Father, we're going to know about Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. He says in John chapter 5, verse 37, John 5, 37, The Father who sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. We would know the Father and understand Him if we believed in the one the Father sent. John 6.46 John 6.46 Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. John chapter 12 John chapter 12 and verse 45 12.45 We'll actually start in 44, 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. John chapter 14. John 14, we know of this occasion when Philip asks Christ about this. John 14 and verse 8. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? When one sees Christ, one sees the Father, and that's all we need. John 17, John 17, verse 3. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 8. For the words which you have given me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. All that we need to do is look at the words of Christ and we will not only believe in Christ, but believe in the Father, and not only see Christ, but also see the Father and know the Father. And this is what eternal life entails, knowing the true and the living God through Christ, His Son. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are seeing here about the person of Christ, His attributes, His characteristics, and thereby we are seeing the Father. Also, we're seeing what we ought to do as we anticipate the appearance or the revelation, the second coming of Jesus Christ. What our life should be like until we actually see Him and enjoy His presence forever. This is why it says at the very outset of Revelation chapter 1, it is, this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here too it says, which God gave Him which God gave Christ, God gave this to Christ just as we saw in John. John 12, 44 to 50, it was explaining how the Father sent the Son to give the words of the Father to the Son and to deliver those words to us through other means, of course, through the apostles, but then eventually to us. And in the same way here, God gave these words to Christ, to show to His bondservants, to show to John the Apostle, and through John, to all of us. To show to His bondservants, a bondservant or a slave, a slave that belongs to the Master in Heaven. This is who John is, and that's who we are. Specifically and immediately, it is John, as it says in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Specifically, it is John who receives these words. We'll also notice in verse 1 that it is sent by means of his angel. By means of Christ's angel. Between Christ and John, Christ has an angel who delivers and ministers to John. Chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. And he said to me, 22, 6, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. I, Jesus, have sent my angel 
Jesus is not the angel himself, but he sent his angel to deliver these words to John and to minister to John. In fact, this is what Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not, are angels not, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? This is the way it was communicated to John. This is actually not very different than the prophets of the Old Testament. For example, in the case of Daniel the prophet, Daniel the prophet also, he was ministered to by means of an angel. An angel ministered to Daniel. We can read of it in Daniel's chapters 8, 9, and 10. An angel, specifically in chapter 9, it is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel ministered to Daniel. It's not unusual for God to use the means of an angel to deliver his word to his bondservants, the prophets. Now, notice too, it says that these things which must shortly take place. We will pick up on this phrase in a few moments when we come to other verses that say similar words. Now, notice in verse 2. Verse 2. John is the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is the one who testified or bore witness. He testified as a witness, as an eyewitness of the truths that he is delivering. And what did he testify of? The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the way in this book, in the book of Revelation, John's way or God's way to John explaining the gospel. Essentially, it's another way of saying the gospel, the word of Christ, the scriptures. This is another way of saying it. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is the Word of God, and the whole Bible testifies and is a witness to Jesus Christ. Who is He and what did He come to do for our redemption? We'll see this phrase repeated. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9 says that when John was on the island, it says he was there because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He adhered to it, and the authorities didn't like it, so they exiled him. They imprisoned him on this prison island, Patmos. This is what they did because they despised what he was believing. It says, says again in chapter 6, not only is John the one who adheres to this, but others do. Chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Chapter 19 and verse 10. Chapter 19 and verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy all about? It's about testifying of Jesus. And what are we all to do? We're supposed to hold on to this testimony of Jesus. Hold on to it until the very end, until we see Jesus face to face. This is what John is telling us right here in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is another way of explaining the gospel. The gospel that should be adhered to until the very end. And this is what he saw. He saw the person and work of Christ. This is what he saw in this book. This is what he delivers to us. Now verse 3. In verse 3 we have a beatitude. A beatitude. We have beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, but also in a few other places in Scripture, in the Old and New Testaments. Here is one such beatitude. How can we be blessed? A beatitude is what the Bible says about blessing. Who receives a blessing? Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. The blessing comes upon the one who reads. Typically, this is the one who reads it publicly. Because the one who reads it publicly is not the one who does so at the last minute, just a minute before the service starts. He's not informed of the passage before that. He's informed of it earlier so that he can practice, so that he can meditate on it, so that he can speak, read it as he speaks in front of the church with meaning because he has contemplated what's there and he understands its significance and he understands how to pray in accordance with it. The one who reads it publicly. Blessed is the one who reads publicly assuming that he has reflected upon it and believes what he has read. But not only for him, but for those who hear the words. Those who are there to worship along with the public reader, they all can be blessed when they hear the words of the prophecy. Notice too, this is called a prophecy. John is not only an apostle, a disciple, a believer, a bondservant, he's also a prophet. A New Testament prophet. Though we don't typically refer to John as a prophet, he is at least here in this book. Because it's called the words of the prophecy. There's a blessing for reading, there's a blessing for hearing, and now a blessing for heeding for obeying, for paying attention to and listening to what you hear. It's not enough just to hear, but we have to act upon what we hear. Heed the things which are written in it. We have similar words to this in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. The blessing for those who obey what they hear. James chapter 1. Verse 22, James 1, 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man shall be blessed, there's our word, in what he does. 
It's not enough just to listen. It's good to listen, but you have to act upon what you hear. You have to heed or obey what you hear. If you don't, you're only deceiving yourselves. You're deluding yourselves. It's, it's bad enough when somebody else deceives us, but it's even worse when we deceive ourselves. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't be forgetful. Don't be forgetful, but be one who remembers and obeys what he heard. And that's the point of the book of Revelation. Study it, not for the sake of intellectual curiosity, not for the sake of comparing it with the daily newspaper, not for the sake of publishing books and making money, or any other ill motive that people might have. The book was not written for that purpose. The book was written for us to hear these words and then to obey. Just as John had to obey, and all others who were faithful to God had to obey, obey what it says. That's the purpose. For the time is near. Now we've come to this phrase, a, a synonymous phrase to what we saw in verse 1. Things which must shortly take place for the time is near. That which is near or shortly taking place. We must take this to mean that in the sight of God, everything is urgent for us to do and obey. Behold, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Now is the time that when we hear it, we must do it because imminently anything could happen. Afflictions could happen. Death could happen. And immediately we will face God. And also, in, the t in terms of God's timetable, what we think is a long time is not necessarily a long time with God. What we think is a long time is not necessarily a long time in God's timetable, in God's chronology. Take, for example, a few places where the scriptures speak in this way. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 8. This is the parable of the unjust judge and the widow who pleads with him. The unjust judge and the widow who pleads. And notice, because of the widow's persistence, what Jesus, uh, that the unjust judge gives her her desire. And then the Lord tells us the moral of this parable. He tells us, verse 6, Luke 18, 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith on the earth will be rare. It will only reside in his elect. God is not like the unrighteous judge. He's a righteous judge. And he will give us our petitions, our grievances, our injustices will be redressed in due time. And he says, It is for us who cry to him day and night. We plead with God. We cry to him day and night. And he says he will not delay long over them. Will he? Delay long over them? He's not going to delay. And then he says in verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. Speedily. 
bring justice for his elect. Romans 16.20 says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan will one day, but it says soon. God will crush Satan under our feet. That has not happened yet. It's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. And one more example is 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. This also directly deals with the second coming of Christ. 2 Peter 3.3 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but, his pa it, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says Christ will come in due time, and He'll destroy the world by fire, by means of fire, and He will set apart ungodly men for the day of judgment and destruction. And God's time, His timetable, a day with God is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He doesn't mean literally, because He's using this preposition as, which constructs a simile. It's a figure of, of speech. It's not literally one day is a, is a thousand years. He didn't say one day is a thousand years. He says as a thousand years. He's using a figure of speech. And essentially, verse 9 is the interpretation. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. God's not slow. He speaks urgently to us because our day of affliction and our day of death is unpredictable. And the return of Christ will come soon to the people who are partying, getting drunk at night, carousing at night, He'll come like a thief in the night, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's what will happen. And when He comes, they will not escape His judgment. This is what the Bible means, and this is what the book of Revelation means, when it says the time is near, or He's coming quickly, which it says that in several places, especially in Revelation chapter 22, that He comes quickly. It means quick in that sense, in that twofold sense. Our day of affliction and death is imminent, and... When He returns, He will come in His timetable, and when He comes, that's it for everybody. That'll be all. Now, verse 4. John, that is John the Apostle, John the Apostle, one of the twelve apostles, writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. The seven churches are listed in verse 11 by name. And then also, oracles or words 
are given to them in chapters 2 and 3. These are the seven churches that are addressed. Although he is dealing with their particular situations, this book is not intended to be applicable only to those seven churches. For example, the letter to the Roman church is not applicable only to the Roman church. The letters to the Corinthian church are not only applicable to the Corinthian church. The letters to the church or the letter to the churches of Galatia are not only applicable to the churches of Galatia. The same with the Ephesians or the Colossians. Those letters and all the other letters are not only applicable to the addressees because what they experience is what we all experience. Their dilemmas in life and their hardships in life and their need for redemption and their need for hope and their need for perseverance and their need for forgiveness of sins and to await the day that Christ returns, their need is the same as our need. And that's what, what is intended here. Although he is meeting the needs of his contemporary churches, it's still the case that these applications or these interpretations are applicable to us to the extent that our situation, personal, family, church, national, whatever situation that we have is similar to this, these words apply to us. Now, these seven churches were real churches in a real place in Asia. In the text, it says Asia. This is not expansive in the same sense as we use the English word Asia today. When we use the word Asia today, we're speaking in contradistinction to Africa or Europe or North America, South America, some other continent. We're speaking of that vast terrain going from modern Turkey or Israel and in that area all the way going east to China and Japan. This is what we consider Asia today. In this time, the, the province, the Roman province of Asia Minor was in modern Turkey. And this is what he means. These churches were situated in seven cities in modern Turkey or ancient Asia Minor as the Romans referred to that part of the world. This is what it means here. Asia. Real places. Now this is important because although we read about many symbols and figures of speech and a vision and things that happen in heaven, and all of that, we should not lose sight that this actually is addressed to real people with real needs. And whatever we read here, whatever is applicable in the spiritual realm, is not only applicable to whatever is going on in the spiritual realm, but how it relates to tangible, real, physical people like you and me. It was addressed to actual churches in Asia. Okay? Historical application and modern current application. The typical greeting is given. Grace to you and peace. Grace. God's grace, the favor of God, the goodness of God, the blessing of God that is given to man unmerited without anything good that he sees in us. Remember, he only sees black or deadness or sin, evil in us. Yes, we're created in His image, but the image has been twisted, marred, destroyed, and perverted. And it needs to be redeemed. And that's why grace is necessary. Grace is necessary to save us 
And it's also necessary to sustain us in our sanctification. It's necessary to save us, 100% save us, and sustain us or sanctify us. And then peace. Peace is also available. Peace is needed because naturally we are alienated from God. We are His enemies, Romans 5, 9, and 10. We are naturally His enemies and alienated from Him. We're hostile to Him. Peace is needed. Reconciliation is needed so that we become His allies, His friends, a part of His family, not strangers, foreigners, and enemies, but a part of His family. We need that redemption, that kind of peace, but also we need peace with one another. We had we had conflict and animosity with each other, but now we are brought together as one body in Christ. We're brought together so we're part of one family. We're, we are adopted by God for that purpose, so now we have peace with one another. Peace that needs to remain even though afflictions come. Even though people on the outside attack the church, the church must love one another, be at peace with one another, be unified and withstand the onslaughts of the wicked world. Now, from where does grace and peace originate? He tells us in verse 4, from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. This is from God, the Father. God the Father is, He was, and He is to come. In the sense that, this phrase means, He's eternal. He's unchanging. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. Isaiah 43.10 Before me there was no God formed, and there shall be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There's no God before God, and there's no God after God. This is what it means here. He, wa he is, He was, and He is to come. He will always be. This is the source of of all that is good and true and holy and righteous, gracious and merciful. All comes from Him. This is set here to give us hope and consolation. Trust that although our circumstances change and though our circumstances are unpredictable, God is eternal and unchanging. He is predictable. He will be there on our side to help us. And also it says that this message is coming and the, the graces are coming from the seven spirits who are before His throne. The seven spirits who are before His throne. There are a couple of ways to look at the seven spirits interpretation. Some of your Bibles may have a capital S for spirits. The NASB does, which I use, and this means that the translation believes that this is speaking of the full virtues or the full attributes of the Holy Spirit that He possesses and He conveys and gives to us, His people. The Spirit has these attributes and He gives these sevenfold, full orb attributes and graces and virtues to us. In fact, in the Greek Old Testament of Isaiah 11, verse 2. If we may go there, Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Hebrew Old Testament has six attributes here, but the Greek Old Testament, and John likely knew the Greek Old Testament as well, the Greek Old Testament lists seven attributes of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 2. 
It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. That is, on Christ. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. Who is this Spirit? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, uh, excuse me, counsel and strength. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's six right there in pairs. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. There's six. But the Greek Old Testament adds another one, godliness. Godliness right in the middle. Godliness is the seventh. So these, perhaps, when it says that the seven spirits of God, meaning the sevenfold attributes that the Spirit who rested on Christ also rests on us to give us the means to follow Christ. Just as Christ followed God, we follow Christ and serve God that way with these kinds of attributes. And the, the Spirit is there in heaven and the Spirit is sent to our aid and our assistance. That's one interpretation. A second interpretation is taken from passages such as Luke 9.26 Luke 9:26 where Jesus is speaking of his return and he speaks of his return being accompanied by angels so that angels are also in heaven and they minister on behalf of the father with the son Luke 9:26 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The holy angels have some glory that they receive from the Father, and it is the Father's glory and the angels' glory that will come with Christ when He comes in glory in His second coming. Also, 1 Timothy 5.21, 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul charges Timothy by means of angels. 521, 1 Timothy 521. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. The apostle charges Timothy in the presence of God, meaning God the Father, Christ, and his chosen angels by these three witnesses and authorities. This may be what is meant by the seven spirits who are before his throne. Because later we'll see in chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 20, where it says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Each church has an angel sent with this message, to deliver this message to the churches. So when it says seven spirits, it may be the seven spirits of angels sent from the throne of God to minister on behalf of the churches. I personally, I take the first view. The first view that it is a representation of the full attributes of the Spirit that He bestows on His people. And also verse 5. Now, this salutation or greeting is coming from the Father, the seven spirits who are before His throne, and verse 5, also from Jesus Christ. Also from Jesus Christ, who is identified 
with three descriptors. The faithful witness. He was faithful until the very end. He was faithful until he died. So he is an example. He testifies of the truth of God faithfully until the very end and is our example to do the same, for us to do the same. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn of the dead. This phrase also occurs in Colossians 1, 1 1.18. And it is a reference to Jesus being the first one who rose from the dead immortally. The first one who rose from the dead immortally or in a glorified body, never to die again. This is what he, he did when he rose from the dead. So, he rose from the dead, which gives us hope that just as he was faithful until death, we shall also rise from the dead. Even as he said, John 14, 19, Because I live, you shall live also. Or John eleven twenty five. He, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. We will rise just as he rose from the dead. He's also called the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, as it says in chapter 19, 11 to 16. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So whatever we read here about kings, rulers, any kind of authority that has the power to afflict the people of God, the point here is that Christ rules over them and holds them on a leash. He gives them the appointment and the permission to do things according to His own will. They are not able to do things according to their own whims and fancies. Christ controls what they can or can't do to the people of the earth, including his own people, the elect. And also verse 5, when it says the ruler of the kings of the earth, this also implies that just as Jesus is now reigning, remember it says in Psalm 110 verse 1, which is applied to Christ, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is in reference to Christ's ascension, according to Acts chapter 2. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says that according to Christ's ascension, He's now sitting at the right hand of the Father and ruling. He's ruling the universe until His second coming. And just as He's doing that, He will give that rulership to us. He says in chapter 2, Chapter 2, 26, Revelation 2, 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Just as Christ has authority from his Father to rule like this, he will give it to us when we overcome. This is the sense in which Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He rules now, and He will rule forever, and He will permit us to jointly share rulership forever and ever. And lastly, in verse 5, He's described as, To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. To Him who loved us and released us from our sins by His blood. One perfect 
place where this love and release from sins is explained is 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, also written by this same apostle. 1 John 4, 7 to 19. 1 John 4, 7 to 19. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. For propitiation to occur, it means that Jesus has to die and shed His blood to appease the wrath of God. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Specifically, verses 9 and 10 and verse 19. Because God loved us, he releases us. He propitiates for our sins. He makes sure that we are forgiven of our sins by the blood of Christ. He does it, and we benefit. And notice the benefit in verse 6, Revelation 1.6. And He has made us. We didn't make ourselves, and we didn't cooperate with Him. He has made us to be a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? Priests to His God and Father. He has made us to be a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, as it says in Exodus 19.4-6 and 1 Peter 2.9-10. and 10. He makes us a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. God makes us this. We have royalty and we have the, the privileges of the priests who have access to God, who have intimate access to God. This is what we have and this is to his God and Father. Jesus made this possible unto his God and Father. We belong to the same one that Jesus belongs to, God the Father. And then the glory is, is there in verse 6. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. After this summation of our redemption, the person of Christ and our redemption to Him be the glory forever 
uh, dominion and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory, that is praise, goes to God. Dominion, that is the power, the authority, is belonging to God and it belongs forever and ever. Amen. Amen means we agree. We understand and we say it's true, it's faithful, it's right, we agree. This is the way it is. Praise and power belong to God forever and ever. And then what do we do? Meantime, we hope and look for the following. Verse 7. We, this is what we are anticipating. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Even so, Amen. We await the time that He comes with the clouds, or in the clouds. He comes in the sky. And when He comes, every eye will see Him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. And even those who pierced Him, those who crucified Him, everyone will see this glorious second coming of Christ. His coming is visible. His coming is miraculous. His coming will be certain. It will be definite. It will not be secret. It will not be in a corner. It will not be in the wilderness or in the desert. It will be in the sky, and every eye will see Him. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Acts 1 and verse 9. Christ ascends into heaven. Let's see what the angels say to the disciples. Acts 1, verse 9. And after He had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You saw him go in a cloud, you will see him come with the clouds. You saw Him go visibly, you will see Him return visibly. It says, in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. The clouds and the sky are associated with heaven, which is beyond, in the unseen realm. When we look at the clouds, we look at the sky, we think of heaven. And this is why Jesus comes in the clouds and He departed in the clouds. To assure the disciples He went into heaven, and then also for us in our anticipation and hope that He will come from heaven in order to receive us. And then everyone will mourn because those who did not believe will be sorrowful at His return. We who believe have joy and hope, but those who disbelieve will mourn because they did not believe. They rejected Him. They might taunt now. They might ridicule now. They might mock Him and spit at the people of God now. But at that time, they're going to mourn. God will have the last laugh. He will laugh, as Psalm 2 says. Psalm 2 says, God will laugh. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is what will happen. They will mourn and God will laugh. Now verse 8. Who is God? Who is this one? Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Lord God is speaking, and the Lord God says He is the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. Throughout this book, and in Isaiah, a few places in Isaiah, such as 44, 6, and 48, 12, a, a couple of references there. And in Revelation, as we will see in Revelation 1, 17, Jesus identifies Himself as the first and the last. As well, in Revelation 22, in Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus identifies Himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is this one who is the Alpha and the Omega. This is meant to illustrate for us that He is the beginning and the end. He is all that needs to be. He is eternal. All that we need, all that is right and good, all that is eternal, lasting, enduring, reliable, trustworthy, unchanging, is in God. And that's all we need. We need Him. He is the Almighty. All power belongs to Him. And if all power belongs to Him, omniscience belongs to Him too. The fact that He knows all things. And omnipresence also belongs to Him. These are all implied here. If He's almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent, He's also omniscient and omnipresent. And therefore, we can trust Him. We ought to trust Him. Trust Him and no one else. Verse, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Notice here. John identifies himself as our brother. He's our brother. Our brother in our family, he suffered which means the rest of the family will also suffer if we have the same name. We all have the name Christ or Christian. If we are in that family, we're going to suffer as our brother suffered. And he also says he's a fellow partaker. He emphasizes this point that what he endured, we also must endure. He's not writing from an ivory tower. He's not writing from a, a comfortable office and telling us what all is going to happen. He is writing as one who has suffered just as we will suffer. He, he's been there in the field in the heat of the day. He's been there where the taskmaster had the whip and struck our backs. He was there where our enemies threatened to put us to death and beheaded us. He was there in, in those kinds of precarious circumstances. He was there. He's a fellow partaker. So he's not... Aloof. He's not an elitist. He is not in his ivory tower. He is just like us. This is the way it is with the prophets and the apostles. And what is it that he does along with us? He has tribulation. He's, he has these afflictions, tribulations. But he also has, after the tribulation, a kingdom. We all have a kingdom. He has a kingdom that awaits him. We have a kingdom that awaits us. In the meantime, what do we have? What do we need to do? Perseverance. Perseverance, endurance, stability, steadfastness. This is what's necessary from us. 
Yes, we'll have tribulation. And yes, the hope to come is our kingdom. But in the meantime, there must be perseverance. We have to endure the, the, the strife and the afflictions. And all of these are in Jesus. Just as Jesus, our brother, went ahead. He's our forerunner who went ahead. He's the one who suffered before we suffered. And he suffered ultimately, not for his sins, but for our sins. He suffered to glorify the Father and to do the will of the Father. Just as Jesus did, we must also. We can't say we belong to Jesus and then say afflictions and sufferings, any kind of hardships, don't belong to us. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 If we belong to Jesus, we will need to suffer as Jesus suffered. John was exiled on this island. This was a prison island. The criminals of the Roman Empire, some of them, they were deported and exiled onto this island. It was a rocky island off the, the coast of, of Greece, east of Greece and west of modern Turkey, in the Aegean Sea. An island that was rocky and barren. He had to live there for some time. He had to live there and suffer. He was sent there not because of his sins, even though it was a prison island. Not because of his sins, it says in verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He committed no crime against the Romans. He committed no crime against God. He obeyed God and Satan, through the Roman authorities, persecuted him. This is the, this is the valid reason the only valid reason why any of us should be in prison. We, if we're in prison, we should be in prison because we were faithful to God. We must have that kind of courage. Verse 10. When he went to this island, though it was a rocky and barren place, a place of prisoners, God was still there. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit... On the Lord's day. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Holy Spirit overcame him. The Holy Spirit controlled him. The Holy Spirit revealed this word to him. Jesus used this phrase of David. David was in the Spirit when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand. That was J David in the Spirit. Matthew twenty two forty three. David said that while the Spirit was indwelling him and revealing God's Word to him. In the same way, John the Apostle is in the Spirit. The Spirit of God has control of him and he is seeing things and writing things and saying things and doing things because the Holy Spirit controls him. On the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day, this is the one time in the Bible this expression occurs, and it is a reference to the first day of the week, Sunday, or the eighth day. That is, after the week that needed to be completed for our redemption, the final week of Jesus' life, then on the first day of the week, that is when Jesus 
rose from the dead, and we commemorate his resurrection each Lord's Day. We know that he died to save us, and but he rose on that day, and this is when he receives this revelation. Maybe because this reminds us of victory, of the, the conquest of death, the glory of God, the resurrection. That perhaps this is why he receives this revelation and the Spirit overtakes him on this day. He says here, I heard behind me a, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. He sees behind him, or, or hears behind him, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Later, he'll say in verse 15, like the sound of many waters. The sound of a trumpet or like the sound of many waters. This is saying that it was very loud, very powerful, very ominous. It got his attention. It got his attention. For example, Revelation 14.2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound, or the sound which I heard was like the, the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Also, Revelation 19, verse 6. 19.6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals, of thunder saying the sound of the trumpet the many waters the thunder this all is signifying it was a commanding ominous voice that he heard and got his attention God was speaking to him and specifically it was Christ as we see in verse 11 and following Christ was the one who was behind him and he sees a vision of Christ. We'll see in verse 11. Christ commands him to write what you see and send it to the seven churches. He names the churches that should re receive this book. He's supposed to compose it, write this book so that it could be recorded and read and studied by these churches and for all subsequent generations. Because what he sees is the word of God and must be delivered to the people of God. 